This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Bill Moyers Journal, Counterspin, The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Political Scene from The New Yorker, Slate Magazine, and The Young Turks. As many of you are aware, this financial crisis is creating a little bit of tension between Wall Street titans and the other 6.5 billion people on Earth. <laughs> and after handing over billions of dollars in bailout funds to banks, President Obama may have had enough. The president noting the outrage in this country after the financial collapse said it's time to go after the banks and the bankers, and if they want to fight, they'll get one. Don't fight him, bankers! <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> he has an army. <laughs> I mean, what weapon does Wall Street have? The third consecutive triple-digit loss for the Dow since the president came out swinging against the banks on Wednesday. Oh, my God, they're taking hostages! <laughs> if you ever want to see a 401k again... <laughs> I suggest you put down your regulations. No, no, I'm serious. I will decrease your dividends. Why is this happening? We would have been up huge on earnings today if it weren't for the president's decision to downsize the banking system. The market hates the Obama plan. Everything that we've seen coming out of Washington, the market doesn't like. Investor confidence was completely shattered by what you got from the Obama administration. The market right. does not like nationalization. The, the market hates this. It hates the stimulus. It hates the bailouts. Well, then give us back our money. Yes, your cheap applause only makes me stronger. <laughs> I guess that explains why the market is up 16% since Obama took over, and it's up 30% since the stimulus package was signed, and why the banks have posted record profits. I mean, they're doing it, they're just probably not happy about it. You know, they said Obama was going to redistribute the wealth. They never said which direction. <laughs> See, I figured this out. Obama's a socialist, but he's also dyslexic. <laughs> he's redistributing the wealth. He's just going through. Either that or Wall Street is using the Dow as a cudgel to scare people away from any action that might cut their profits. Or maybe there's an even stupider reason. Former President George Bush was saying in South Korea early this morning, his big bank bailout was to thank, is to thank. So what was once the Bush recession is now the Bush recovery? Or is that a bit of a stretch? Jim Camp says give credit where it's due. Well, that explains it. Finally, we have a roadmap to the rational and objective movements of the stock market. I guess the only thing that was preventing a total Obama stock market buzzkill was a little bush resin that was still left in the pipe. <laughs> oh, and I guess there probably is one other factor to consider. A lot of people on Wall Street are Jets fans. Yeah, the Jets I... lost last night. Is that going to really affect the market today? <laughs> All is lost. Just because I'm losing 
Across the ocean in London, in the very heart of the city, the district where St. Paul's Cathedral and other historic churches nestle in the same neighborhood as the big multinational banks, some financiers were showing signs of contrition. These modern-day Ebenezer Scrooges were actually questioning how they earned their fortunes. According to the Financial Times, they were asking themselves how financial capitalism has become synonymous with, and I quote, crazy, risk-taking, with the passing off of toxic investments to unwitting counterparties and the earning of multi-million dollar bonuses, regardless of merit. Talk about mea culpa. This epiphany came soon after the British government said it will slam a 50% tax on bonuses over 25,000 pounds. That would be anything over $40,000 here in the U.S. In April, the tax on those who make more than 150,000 pounds, that comes out to an annual paycheck of around a quarter of a million American, could go as high as 50%. But that news, as well as tighter banking regulations in the United Kingdom, elicited a hearty bah humbug from the London branch of Goldman Sachs, which has hinted that if the tax hike goes through, it just might shut down its London operations and ship them to Switzerland, land of the cuckoo clock and secret bank accounts. Take that patriots. But as David Korn and Kevin Drum just told us, on this side of the Atlantic, the specter of tighter regulation or higher taxes isn't keeping American bankers up at night. To the contrary, last month, the American Bankers Association sent out an update, a call to action memorandum, crowing over its success watering down the bank reform bill that had been approved by the House and urging its members to beat back similar legislation in the Senate. It concluded, as one of your New Year's resolutions, please vow to do everything in your power to show and to have your colleagues in your bank show your senators the right path to true reform. It helps, of course, when the so-called right path is paved with gold. The nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics, an indispensable source for information on money's role in politics, reported in November that the finance, insurance, and real estate sector has given $2.3 billion to candidates, leadership PACs, and party committees since 1989. You heard me right, billions, a sum that eclipses every other sector, including the defense and healthcare lobbies. All of this is beginning to break through to harried taxpayers across the country. There may not be a movement yet for fundamental change, as David Korn said, but here, there, and elsewhere, citizens are waking up, looking around, and asking, what can we do?
mistaken for a left-leaning news outlet, as the New York Times often is, has its advantages. For one thing, it allows you to declare ideas that are genuinely on the left to be outside the realm of responsible debate. Take a piece from the January 19th Times by Michiko Kakutani, one of the paper's regular book critics, that reviewed the book Free Fall, America, Free Markets, and the Sinking of the World Economy by progressive economist Joseph Stiglitz. Now, Kakutani did say that Stiglitz's foresight about the financial crisis lends credibility to his trenchant analysis of the causes of the fiscal meltdown, though at the same time she accuses him of, quote, an I-told-you-so sanctimoniousness about both the recession and Washington's response, close quote. But it's Stiglitz's policy proposals that Kakutani really can't swallow. She admonishes, quote, some of the suggestions that Mr. Stiglitz makes in these pages for reconfiguring the American economy and American society stray far from the realm of practical policy recommendations that actually have a chance of winning broad public support or being enacted by Congress, close quote. So what are these way out ideas? For one thing, he suggests that a redistribution of income and more progressive taxation might help stabilize the economy. Now, for the record, taxing the rich doesn't just have a chance of winning broad public support. It already has it. It doesn't have New York Times support, though. Kakutani retorts that, quote, such remarks not only give ammunition to conservative critics who want to dismiss Mr. Stiglitz as a European-style liberal, but they also have the unfortunate effect of diverting the reader's attention from the many shrewd assessments that he makes in freefall about the causes and consequences of the great financial meltdown of 2008, close quote. While setting aside the nightmare of being called a liberal, it sounds like the Times is saying the mere fact of being right about a devastating economic fiasco shouldn't give an economist any big ideas about messing with business as usual. supports this program and it's a great fit because I've used them for years. As a member of Generation Y and an avid consumer of audio, I've all but lost the ability to read, so I depend on Audible for nearly all of my pleasure reading via their huge selection of audiobooks, periodicals, and so much more. For listeners of Best of the Left, they are offering a free audiobook download of your choice. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com best. You may have heard similar promotions discussed on other podcasts, so make no mistake, this is a popularity contest. Forsake the other programs you like and support this tiny, independently produced show by using my special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash best. not been on the show since February 12th, 2008. I wonder what he's been up to. Please welcome Elliot Spitzer. Good to see you. Hey, Mr. Spitzer, thanks so much for coming back on. Pleasure Good to, to see you. Thank you. So, how you been? Wonderful. Peaceful. Really? Peaceful, absolutely. Peaceful? Good. Do you have any, any big plans after the show tonight? Uh, going straight home. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I like about you, okay? Don't get me wrong. Yes, sir. I Just condemn warm. you. I condemn you. I, I get that sense. I condemn you. I condemn you. I, you are condemned. Fully condemned by me. 
All right? Yes, sir. I'll be clear about that. But I like you. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Is because when I see you on TV now, I know that guy's got to be an honest broker because you've got nothing to lose, right? Th that sums it up. Yeah. I mean, you've got no public image to uphold. It's better that you don't <laughs> uphold your public image well, at this point. Th 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 there is a certain virtue to being able to tell the absolute truth and stick it to people without worrying about repercussions. That is true. Exactly. There's nothing they've got on you. That is... <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. All right. So, let's talk about... You've got to work your way back into the public's good graces with ability. All I'm right? Trying. That's so. Right. Let's talk about the thing you know about. Malfeasance in our banking system. Right. What's happening right now that me and the great unwashed mashes that I love should be angry about? Everything. Absolutely everything. Angry? I'm ready wait, to be wait, furious. Wait, 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 wait. You should be furious because what's happening is that we are rebuilding the system exactly as it was before. The same banks, the major investment banks, having taken tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of your money, and taxpayer money are now doing exactly what they were doing with it before, gambling with it, taking it out as bonuses, and not doing what they should be doing, which is investing in the American economy. And the problem we have... But aren't the banks... Let me just stick up for my, my banking buddies right. here. Because you got buddies right. in the banking system, Absolute. I'm sure. Absolutely. I do too. Down at the club, some of my best friends. Right. Okay? Right. I don't want to see those guys hurt in this. We're not going to go through with regulation, and, are we? Oh, I certainly hope not. We wouldn't want to regulate an industry that has just destroyed our economy. That'd be a terrible thing to do. But we've just, we've just gotten the banks back on their feet. It's a very right. delicate time in the market it, right it, now, it, Elliot. It is not delicate at all. And it is fact, absolutely delicate. You saw the bubble burst. That's right. We wouldn't want that to happen again. No, just and don't here's even talk the about the bubble. The good news is the same people who inflated the bubble in the first place are back in charge again. And the same people running the banks who destroyed our economy are still there. But then all we and have to do is get in front of the bubble, make our investments, get out clean before it bursts again. And, or, and then, that's right. then, my friend, I got mine, Jack. And when, when I know when to do that, I'll call you first so we can invest together. That would be fantastic. The real problem is that the White House, until last week, had not even begun to do what was critically necessary to restructure our financial services sector. Why didn't he do it when he had 60 votes? That is a good question. Thank many you. people, many people were begging him to do it, and I will say very clearly, the team of Summers and Geithner has been, in my view, an abject failure. Because what they have done is take all the money and give it right back to the banks without demanding that the banks change the way they do business. Why shouldn't the banks get that money? Don't, doesn't everything in our economy depend on the banks? No, everything in our economy what do you mean, depends. But that's loan, loans, all the the, the credit sure. flow, all goes to the banks. And Aren't they the linchpin? Shouldn't they get anything they want? They should be given money. Are you running for office? They, they. Are, are you? <laughs> I don't answer that question. <laughs> what? What we need to do is get money back to the businesses that will invest instead of giving it to the banks so they can play games in the casino economy. And precisely what Paul Volcker proposed we do is what we should do, which is to constrain their behavior and say, if you get bailout money, if you get guaranteed access to federal credit, which is what they have now, then you must lend that money, not get involved in proprietary trading and the casino economy.
You know, I got a friend who is a friend of mine, you know, where I live in the undisclosed area in the New York area, that I'm at his Christmas party. He says to me, fine, fine. You want to you wanna tax the banks? Fine. I won't use my driver. I won't have the maid come over. I won't go down and spend my spend the restaurants. I'll watch, you'll watch this economy crumble when guys like me don't spend the money out there. Let's get you a drink. Let's go. The, 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 the reality is that these bankers created a system, a bubble that collapsed, leaving us with no net job growth, flat median family income. We have exported our manufacturing sector. We are the largest debtor nation in the country. The paradigm and the entire economy they believed in was fictitious. It was razzle-dazzle. And we are now back on our heels. And the president of the United States needs to go to China like a high school student asking for his allowance. We are borrowing from China to keep ourselves going. And this is the economy they created. Last question. <laughs> ben Bernanke, yes. who oversaw the collapse of not only the United States, but pretty much the entire world financial system, right. and brought our economy to its knees, has been reappointed as head of the Fed. Right. Does this give you hope for being reelected governor of New York? <laughs> because... May I remind you, he screwed everybody. I just became a big fan of Ben Bernanke. Thank you, Elliot Spitzer. Please come back many times. The president's senior advisor, David Axelrod, recently said that he told the president around the time he was inaugurated that one year later, i.e. now, he'd be operating with worse approval numbers and in a worse political climate because of the disastrous economy in freefall, which, president, the, the, which Obama's presidency was starting with. Uh, Mr. Axelrod was right, of course. These are tough political times for the party in power. But honestly, we didn't end up having a second Great Depression, even though a lot of people thought we were going to. And what's happened to the economy since Obama has been president isn't exactly a record to run from. Here's GDP, the uh, whole gross domestic product in the last uh, three quarters of the Bush administration. I guess that's the last four quarters of the Bush administration. Grim, right? Well, here's the first three quarters once President Obama took office. See that at the end there? That's called a growing economy. And making that out of what the last guy handed off to you is not quite loaves into fishes, but you get the idea. Uh, on the jobs front, even when an economy improves, jobs improve later. And the unemployment rate right now is really, really horribly high. But again, look at the trend here. When President Bush left office, the job loss graph looked like an animation flip book of something being hurled off a cliff. Since President Obama took office, the rate of job losses is slowing. Trend, right direction. 
In terms of economic policies, President Obama signed into law a stimulus a little less than a year ago. Even as Republicans complain about it, economists, by and large, say it worked. Individual economists who are politically notable, like Mark Zandi, who advised John McCain's campaign against Obama, say that stimulus worked and we need another one. USA Today surveyed 50 economists on the stimulus yesterday. The verdict? It's held down the unemployment rate and saved, in their median estimate, 1.2 million jobs. Well, then there's the banking system bailout. While politically toxic, it does seem to have preserved the existence of a banking sector in the United States and to have averted the aforementioned Second Great Depression. And by the way, it earned money for taxpayers. The Federal Reserve actually turned a $52 billion profit last year. That's return on the bailout money. And in order to recoup the rest of the money that we gave the banks, President Obama has proposed a bank fee. The big political bonus for the president on that one is that the Republicans are against the bank fee. Republicans are siding with the banks against paying back the bailout money to the taxpayers. That is such a political gift to Democrats, it should have come with wrapping paper on it and a ribbon tied around it. Mr. Obama's other bailout was, of course, for the auto industry. Again, we still have an auto industry in this country, which is handy and was not necessarily going to happen on its own. General Motors announced yesterday that they're about ready to pay back their bailout money as well. The auto industry was also helped by Obama's Cash for Clunkers program. Ford, which didn't even get bailout money, is expected to announce big 2009 profits next week. Today, Ford announced that they're adding 1,200 new jobs to a plant in Illinois. President Obama's next stride on economic issues, Wall Street reform, which again happens to be a great political issue for Democrats, given that Republicans are on the pro-Wall Street, anti-populist side of this. Republicans are against President Obama's Consumer Financial Protection Agency, which means in political speak that they are pro-fine print and hidden credit card fees. You can put a ribbon on that one too. Republicans are even against Mr. Obama's new series of micro-targeted, Clinton-esque, middle-class family tax cuts. You know, no one would wish this economy on any president right now, but given what he's done with what he had to work with, given the results of this year's governing compared with, say, the last guy, Given the demonstrable success of this president's biggest economic policy decisions of the past year, even as a lot of those decisions were politically tough to take, given that his new policy suggestions have boxed in Republicans to make them take incredibly toxic stances that are likely to bum out their own constituents and to disgust moderates, and that those same Obama proposals are likely to inspire a little faith in Obama on the left and maybe therefore close the enthusiasm gap between these, these two political parties and their bases, given all of that, given everything he's got going for him heading into the State of the Union, the president has decided to surrender, to give up. Democrats have marched all the way down the field to the one-yard line, and instead of fighting their way into the end zone, they have decided to punt from the one. They have decided to give the ball to the other team instead of trying to score. President Obama tomorrow night is expected to announce a massive spending freeze, thereby ceding to Republicans all of the economic political turf they ever wanted. Evidence today by conservative Democratic Senator Evan Bayh holding a celebratory press conference about the spending freeze with John McCain, the man who lost the presidential election to Barack Obama, proposing this idea.
Well, how about a spending freeze on uh, everything but defense, veteran affairs, and entitlement programs? Spending freeze? I think we ought to seriously consider, with the exceptions of caring for our veterans, national defense, and several other vital issues. Would you go for that? Well, the problem with a spending freeze is you're using a hatchet uh, where you need a scalpel. President Obama wins election, then John McCain anointed president by Democrats. Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman today called the spending freeze, quote, appalling on every level. It's bad economics, depressing demand when the economy is still suffering from mass unemployment. It's bad long-run fiscal policy, and it's a betrayal of everything Obama's supporters thought they were working for. Just like that, Obama has embraced and validated the Republican worldview and embraced the policy ideas of the man he defeated in 2008. Blogging at The Economist today, Ryan Event writing, quote, through bad times and good times for the president, there was one word I never associated with him and his approach to the challenges facing the country. Gimmick. But this is a bright, shining gimmick that advertises a lack of seriousness to both near-term economic weakness and long-run budget problems. This is decidedly not what is needed right now. The Washington Post, in a reported article, not even an op-ed today, describing the spending freeze as a political concession that could dramatically curtail Obama's legislative ambitions while barely denting the deficit. Less than 24 hours from this moment, President Obama will be in the process of punting from the one-yard line, not attacking the real long-term deficit, doing short-term harm to the economy by taking money out of it at a time when government spending is some of the only spending we've got, and conceding to Republicans their economically inane assertion that the way to tackle deficits is by ignoring entitlements and health care costs and defense spending and GASP taxes, and instead by monkeying around with the one-eighth sliver of the budget that makes for good right-wing political attack ads. Awesome. now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. One serious point on that we should always be mentioned in these debates about what tactics or strategies over the last year worked or didn't work or led to this, you know, this backlash against Obama. When the economy is as bad as it is, it doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter whether they're focused on health care or uh, any other issue. You're going to have voters take out their anger on you because you're in power. There's a sort of physics of the situation with the unemployment at 10 percent that I don't know that any president would have sort of counteracted. I do have a question about this, which is that, you know, Obama is a strange contradiction, at least the perception of him, because on one hand, his opponents have been able to say he's a socialist, he wants to socialize medicine and make the government decide what kind of doctor you go to and blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, he's seen also as being in the pocket of Wall Street and the big banks. And it almost seems to me that there is an opportunity for him 
to capitalize on some of this populist rage by taking on the banks and taking on the sort of egregious executive compensation. And just given who he's packed his financial uh, advisory board with, that really hasn't been in the cards. Was that a mistake to be seen as so much of a Wall Street guy? Ryan, that's a good one for you. I think if you look at what they are announcing today, Thursday, it's pretty much an admission that they did get too close to Wall Street. I mean, there's a big policy reversal that has now happened. It's for these reasons that I'm proposing a simple and common sense reform, which we're calling the Volcker Rule, after this tall guy behind me. Banks <laughs> will no longer be allowed to own, invest, or sponsor hedge funds, private equity funds, or proprietary trading operations for their own profit, unrelated to serving their customers. This is something that Paul Volcker has been pushing for a while now, but that Summers and Geithner have been opposed to. And so you definitely are seeing a pivot, not just in a rhetorical one, but a pivot of being much tougher on Wall Street. And I think the political argument may have helped uh, Volcker win, because they want to do everything they can this year now to put the Republicans on defense on these issues. That's going to be a big part of the, the messaging this year and the policy. Rick, I want to ask you a little bit more about this sort of free-floating anger we've been addressing, which brought Scott Brown to office, and which Obama said was the same anger that carried him to office. But then he also blamed himself for not paying attention to voters. I think we lost some of that sense of speaking directly to the American people about what their core values are and why we have to make sure those institutions are matching up with those values. And, and that, I do think, is a mistake of mine. So, Rick, what can Obama do to address the anger effectively and to take back in a responsible way some of the populism? Well, this new turn on, uh, on the banks and Wall Street can help if it's part of a larger, uh, a word I don't particularly like, but I'll use, narrative. We have a piece on the New Yorker website by Juno Diaz lamenting that the opposition, the Tea Party types, have a narrative, have a story. To Diaz's amazement, and I guess to mine too, this great storyteller in the White House, this author, this writer, has not had a compelling story to tell. And if this new policy on banks is presented as part of a story and not just as another technocratic response to a technocratic situation. See, I wonder if it's even worse than that, though. And this was, I, I was having a conversation with a very firm Obama supporter yesterday who was pointing out that Americans are terrified and furious, clearly. You know, there was the underwear bomber on Christmas Day when the White House was on vacation, the job situation, the bonuses at the big banks, you know, more than many people earn in a lifetime. And this sense throughout the country, and now even in some parts of Europe, among some of our allies, that Obama is overwhelmed and under-equipped for the job. Job. That may or may not be true, but doesn't he have to address some of these more global cosmic questions as well? Yeah, I guess he does. But this kind of talk just fills me with a certain kind of despair, really. We're not a monarchy. It's not all about the president. It's not all about Obama. He's not all powerful. Uh, the rest of us have to, to do something, too. And if people are frightened and people are upset, it's partly because our governmental machinery is so incredibly gummed up that nothing happens. It's really no wonder that people are worried that nobody's in charge, because nobody is in charge. And that and it doesn't matter whether you've got Jesus Christ as president, that's still going to be the case until something is done about these institutional problems. Andy? Well, just speaking to Rick's earlier point, you know, like most Americans, I love a good story. And 
I especially love a good story about bank regulation. <laughs> so I think if he can run with that, he's got something. Today's story is called The Gang of Five and How They Nearly Ruined Us, the little-known reason why investment banks got too big, too greedy, too risky, and too powerful. And it's written by Daniel Gross. The surviving investment banks are bristling at efforts aimed at recouping taxpayer losses and forestalling a repeat of the Panic of 2008. Congressional proposals to tax bonuses, President Obama's planned tax on large banks' liabilities, and his suggestion that banks be prohibited from using taxpayer-insured funds for proprietary trading. That last proposal would restrict lending, increase risk, decrease stability in the system, and limit our ability to help create jobs, says Steve Bartlett, CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable, the trade group for megabanks. But if the banks want us out of their business, they should get out of our business first. We've barely lived through a 40-year period in which investment banks have imposed themselves on us. They effectively moved into our house, raided our fridge, and set the joint on fire. Now they're complaining that our renovation efforts are cramping their style. The genesis of the problem was the transformation of investment banks from private partnerships into publicly held companies. The process began when Merrill Lynch went public in 1971. It was followed by the four other horsemen of the 2008 credit apocalypse, Morgan Stanley in 1986, Bear Stearns in 1985, Lehman Brothers 1994, and Goldman Sachs in 1999. The Gang of Five went public so they could compete with the international banking giants that were encroaching on their core business of underwriting stock offerings and advising firms, and so they could boost their activities in risky, capital-intensive businesses like proprietary trading. In order to have a capital base that would support the funding they needed, they had to be public, says Roy Smith, a former Goldman Sachs partner and a professor of finance at New York University. Going public allowed investment banks to get bigger, which then gave them the heft to mold the regulatory system to their liking. Perhaps the most disastrous decision of the past decade was the Securities and Exchange Commission's 2004 rule change allowing investment banks to increase the amount of debt they could take on their books, a move made at the request of the Gang of Five's CEOs. Before Lehman crashed, it had amassed more than $600 billion in debt. No partnership or private corporation could have accomplished that feat. The shift to public ownership also replaced the accountability of partnerships, when there are no profits, there are no partner bonuses, with the dangerous fecklessness of public boards. In theory, boards are supposed to oversee the activities of CEOs. In practice, they act as expensive rubber stamps. These companies had board members who either weren't paying attention or, at Lehman in particular, were deliberately selected because they were unqualified or out of it 
says John Gillespie, a former investment banker at Lehman and Bear Stearns and co-author of the new book Money for Nothing, How the Failure of Corporate Boards is Ruining American Business and Costing Us Trillions. Gillespie notes that in 2008, Lehman's Compensation Committee included actress Dina Merrill, an heiress to the E.F. Hutton fortune, who was 85 years old. By the time Lehman ended its 14-year run as a public company with the bagel, that's what you call a stock worth zero, some $45 billion in shareholder value had been destroyed. Shareholders didn't do much better with the other four. Bear Stearns was rescued from bageldom when J.P. Morgan bought it at a fire sale price with the help of the Federal Reserve. Morgan Stanley and Goldman managed to remain independent and solvent, but only because huge subsidies were made available to them. In late January, Morgan Stanley's stock stood where it did in early 1998. Shareholders may have suffered, but employees and executives didn't. At investment banking partnerships, compensation is contentious. Epic brawls would take place each December as partners argued over bonuses. But they would take place in private, and the process essentially involved rich people taking money out of one another's pockets. Now it's a zero-sum game, with executives and employees essentially taking billions from shareholders. The public, as aggrieved owners, taxpayers, and savers, has every right to question the bank's methods and practices. If they don't want us poking around their businesses, they can shrink their balance sheets, replace government-subsidized debt with market-rate debt, stop relying on the Federal Reserve for funding, and get out of our index funds. As Phil mogul Samuel Goldwyn once said, include me out. You better cut it out. You gotta work it out. You've been giving it up. All you got. And I can do it like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, a little like, oh, oh, oh. Economic advisors, as well as the chief economist on the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. Please welcome back to the show, Austin Goolsby. It's budget day. You dropped your budget. Do you guys, what happens when you drop the, are you involved in, in the making of the budget or how, what do we got there? Everybody got a lot of pages. Yeah, look, it's months in the, uh, it's months in the making. It's got policy in there. You got the political in there. You got uh, negotiations. So a little bit, a little bit of this tonight, a little bit of this tonight. It's got the budget done, boys. <laughs> Woo! Something like that. <laughs> Tell me this, uh, uh, the budget is, is $3.8 trillion. One half of it. We, what? <laughs> there's expenses, there's revenues. That's 2.5? Something like that. For next year. So let it me just, and better. I'm not a mathematician, yeah, but let me negative. just do this real quick. It gets better. We get $2.5 trillion in, that comes from uh, taxes, and then we get to keep the gate, right? At what? 
So people come in on like Ellis Island, they you pay like the 20 fake. bucks. You get, why don't we do that? Why don't we have a cover charge? <laughs> Statue of Liberty, guy comes in, he's like, we uh, huddled masses and stuff like that. It's 20 bucks, man. You got like a two drink minimum. Don't you yeah. think? Why aren't I on the council? I should be on the council. <laughs> so we got a 1.3, what is it? One, where, where are we at deficit-wise? We're, we're over a trillion for next year. Now that's because we're coming out of worst recessions since 1929. The short run, you got to run a deficit to keep yourself away from Great Depression land. As we go out of the short run. Can I tell you something? I'm Can I tell you something? About, let me just we talked about, about this last Great time. Depression Land is the worst amusement park I've ever <laughs> no, been to. I know it is. I've been there. I know it Terrible. Is. It is. You go. Uh, you end up standing online for like two hours, and you get to thinking like, "Here's your consomme." <laughs> That's not a ride. Gruel. Gruel is all they serve. Look, the thing about. is. The short run, yeah. the president's tried to identify, the short run needs to avoid cataclysm, get us out of recession, are different than medium run. Let's get back on right. a path of fiscal responsibility. Unfortunately, we're in an environment where there are people trying to mix those things, and we, we are in the environment where the things the president did that got us away from the abyss the opponents don't want to give any credit to. Mm -hmm. They want to confuse a series of important actions to get us out of recession with long-run budget problems. You're, you're, I don't know what you're saying. Let me, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Let me begin again. Here's, here's what I'm saying right yes. now. You're saying that we had to spend like $700, $800 billion to not go into a depression. Yeah, here's what I'm so saying. So that's what saved us from the cataclysm. Yes. So why then, after, if that's the thing that pulled us out, why stop the spending if we're not really out? Because the only people that are out so far are the people that got us in, which are the banks. I agree with why that. Are we, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you, and we're not. Hey, everybody. We're not. We're all going to depression <laughs> land. We're not. Why, why Look, stop? that's why we have a big deficit for this year. Right. Is you can't stop right now. Now is not the time to tighten the belt. But this is like your, your deadbeat uncle gives you your first car, hand-me-down, and you say, well, it's not in great condition, but that was really generous. And then you come to find out he's got 30 unpaid parking tickets on the thing that now you are left with the bill. And so in this circumstance, <laughs> we've got... A series Can of... Can I just ask you a question? Yes. Who's my you're, uncle? You're a professor of economics? <laughs> because this... The car and the tickets? Look. I mean, let me ask you a question. I'm on leave. <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> the, the, here, can I tell you what surprised me about some of the savings that you're going to have in there? The, uh, the idea of uh, uh, taking away the middleman from college loans would get us... $46 billion over right. 10 years? That stunned me. That gets us more savings than removing subsidies from oil companies, which I, I guess over 10 years says like $40 billion. And the thing that's so frustrating about that, if you take that example, so the uh -huh. president said, look, let's end this subsidy, which the data shows 
it's more expensive doing it directly, just having the government right. do it instead of giving a subsidy for a bank to make the loan. Right. Is, it's more efficient to do it that way. And you can take away the subsidy and use the money to invest in Pell Grants, raise Pell Grants, invest in education, right. which for the long run we know is critical. Right. But, you know, right. as you might imagine, the special interests are down there trying to kill that but how cut. How is it that the special interests, like even, you know, we're talking about bank regulation now. And I know that, that you were a, a strong believer in firm bank regulation. I know Volcker is a strong believer in firm bank regulation. Uh, Paulson and, and Geithner, maybe on the other side. And uh, I don't know. That was a, totally must have been fair. a really boring discussion that you guys had. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's fair in the case of Geithner. I, I think this issue, though, of financial regulation. Yeah. It may be, it may be dull, but it's really, really important. But and why if are you they ask, having difficulty, the, the idea look, that you know why. Well, I mean, think explain about it why. to me. Okay, <laughs> the banks have already spent. Some banks. Mm -hmm. There are eight thousand something banks, and the vast majority of those banks are pillars of their community, and they've been in a, as much of a tough spot as anybody else. Right. But a few banks do not want the rules to be changed. They want the rules to stay where they were because if they rules. can go back to what they had before, that was very lucrative for them. But it's saying to them, you can't own hedge funds, you can't take uh, our money and take these wild risks. You can't be too big to fail anymore. On this Volcker rule, right. it's about you shouldn't be able to take a cross-subsidy in the sense that if the government's providing safety net to banks, you shouldn't be able to get cheap money because of that and then turn around and invest it for so yourself. how can they because, fight that? I read today, the, the, well, even well, Senator Dodd says, nah, we're not doing that. Uh, they're lobbying to fight it on various grounds. I think it's, if it's not out in the daylight, I'm really nervous that that and our whole regulatory reform plan, which that's just one component, the whole thing's got to, the president's got to put focus on that or we're going back to the same world that got us where we are now. Here's, here's my suggestion. You get you call C-SPAN, and instead of having one of those complete, you know, circle jerk hearings where the <laughs> bank guys come in and like the congressional guys, and you don't have to respond to that, Professor. The, uh, <laughs> the 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 bank guys come in in front of the Congress guys, and the Congress guys are like, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "We didn't know." And uh, so instead of that, have the president go in front of them for one of those crazy Q and A things where he lays it all that out good, there, commercial that free. That was good. That was the best thing I've Big ever man, seen on, on, it was the best thing I've ever seen yes. on, on television. Do that out in the open and let's get this thing fixed. Look, I, I agree with that. And we've gotten into the situation where, as you look as we came out of the rescue, we supplied a lot of money and a lot of safety net. Right. Now, fortunately, they're paying a lot of it back. Doesn't it's matter. gonna end up costing not as much as we thought, and we're gonna apply a fee first so it'll rule. cost us First nothing. rule of rescue. The rescue E does not get to make the decisions. Right. And the, the rescue E, you know what? Just clip your belt onto this hook, and we're going up. <laughs> Austin Goolsby.
Frank Luntz is a guy who has been a wordsmith for the Republicans for a long time. Uh, he's the one that comes up with clever uh, phrases and spins. So the estate tax is no longer the estate tax, it's the death tax, okay? Things like that, and I could list a dozen for you that you would recognize. Uh, he's, got, he's also came up with health care reform uh, words on how to kill health care reform. So he fed them to the Republicans, and then they put these out there, and some of which happen to be total fabrications. But they've done a hell of a job with it, and Frank Luntz has had a brilliant career uh, because he's been pushing that Republican agenda. Now, he has the benefit of having almost no one oppose him because the Democrats don't know how to play this game at all, right? But now he's put on, got a new project, and he wrote a 17-page memo called The Language of Financial Reform. The point of this memo is to kill financial reform. Now, that's not conjecture, it's in the memo. First, he tells you, and this is, I mean, every part of this is brilliant. Uh, we need to, quote, acknowledge the need for reform that ensures that this never happens again, this kind of economic collapse. That, quote, the status quo is not an option, and you should never forget the impact of this on your audience, and he even advises uh, the Republicans to promote themselves as the agents of change. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Then he tells them, how to kill the bill, how to kill financial reform. Starts out by saying you should pretend to be in favor of reform, you should pretend that you're the one who's going to bring reform and then kill it entirely. This memo is Republican 101. It's a smoking gun, okay? Now, he just getting warmed up. So, um, he says, look, or, these are quotes, ordinarily calling for a new government program to protect consumers would be extraordinarily popular. So he acknowledges that this bill should be extraordinarily popular, right? Because we're looking to protect consumers with it. But he continues, but these are not ordinary times. The American people are not just saying no, they're saying hell no to more government agencies, more bureaucrats, and more legislation crafted by special interests. So what's the point there? and we want to kill the bill, this helps uh, protect consumers. So how do we have to frame it? We, and remember, this is about language and how you frame things. We have to frame it by pretending that it's a, more bureaucrats, more government involvement, and more about special interests. We're going to get to more of that in a second, because that's just pure genius. Uh, he continues, quote, public outrage about the bailout of, of banks on Wall Street is a simmering time bomb set to go off on Election Day. Frankly, the single best way to kill any legislation is to link it to the big bank bailout. Now, okay, begin to understand the genius now, right? This bill wants to prevent all bailouts in the future. We want to regulate so we don't have to do any more bailouts, right? Luntz says, turn that on its head and pretend that there's a big bank bailout in the bill. In fact, he tells them later, you know what? Just say it's in the bill. Now, Huffington Post caught up with him, and they asked him, hey, so where is it in the bill, this big bank bailout? In fact, they're calling it the permanent bailout. We, we already have Representative Jerry Moran, uh, a Republican of Kansas, who's talking about it on the floor of Congress. And so this Republican talking point is coming. It's what they're calling the equivalent of the death panels in the health care debate, uh, the permanent bailout. So they asked Luntz, point blank, where is it in the bill? You show us where it is, and okay, then we'll take a look at it. He says, quote, and now you can see what a lie it is here. Frank Lutz says, it is in the fine print of the legislation in stuff that was added to the House effort that the Senate has been talking about whether it will keep or not keep it. Do you understand? There's no specific provision. 
He, he wrote a whole 17-page memo about how you should pretend that this is in favor of the bailouts when he, there is no provision. There's no such thing. He, it's in the stuff between the House and the Senate. I can't pinpoint it to you because I made it up. You think if there was a specific provision, Luntz, after writing a 17-page memo, couldn't just flat out tell you what it is? They're lying. But, okay, look. God, there's such genius here, okay? Let me continue, let me continue, and then I will summarize. He says, the American people, these are all quotes, the American people are tired of add-ons, earmarks, and backroom deals, but they are mad as hell at lobbyist loopholes. You must put proponents of the legislation on the defense, forcing them to attempt to justify the lobbyist loopholes and exemptions placed in the bill. Highlight exemptions, broadcast them, remind them this legislation is filled with lobbyist loopholes that exclude certain wealthy, powerful industries from regulations. I mean, look, sometimes people say Obama's playing chess and we don't understand it. And we couldn't understand he's eight moves ahead. <laughs> Obama's playing checkers, man. This guy's playing chess. He's playing 3D chess. You understand what he just told the Republicans to do? He says, fill the bill full of lobbyist loopholes. Then turn around and come back and say, oh, look at all these lobbyist loopholes. Well, this is obviously in favor of the special interests. Well, look at these Democrats selling out to the big banks. Did you hear about the permanent bailout? Oh, no, no, no. This bill is going to make sure that the banks get uh, bigger and that, uh, that they cause another catastrophe. Uh, we're in favor of real change, but not this change. We have to kill this bill. And what happens at the end? We don't fix the problem at all. There is no change. There is no reform. There's no regulation of the banks. And there will be another crash. And there will be another need for another emergency bailout. And at that point, the Republicans will say, you see that? The Democrats screwed it up. <laughs> Man, it's, it's brilliant in about 800 different ways. Now, you think, okay, um, how do you know that the Republicans are filling this thing with lobbyist loopholes? And then complaining about the lobby, still loopholes. Another story in the Financial Times today. Richard Shelby, the ranking Republican in the Finance Committee, saying, hey, if you want bipartisanship, you better kill the parts of reform that Paul Volcker wants. You better kill the Consumer Protection Agency to protect consumers and riddle this thing with lobbyist loopholes. <laughs> I mean, it's happening today, okay? You know, I was naive enough to give Shelby a little bit of credit uh, on an earlier day because he said some positive things about reform. How foolish of me. Okay. No, now that we're in the nitty-gritty and you look at the details, he's looking for 800 ways to chop this thing up. So Volcker had a great statement over the weekend. It encouraged me before I saw all this. And remember, Volcker's the guy Obama's listening to now. We hope, we think, right? And he, he explained four different ways that you can prevent this kind of collapse from happening again. Split up the investment banking from the commercial banking so that our money that we put into the commercial banks don't get endangered when they take risks in their proprietary trading. Makes perfect sense. Richard Shelby wants to spike it. The Republicans want to kill that because they want our money at risk so their lobbyists and their banker friends can get richer. But meanwhile, they got Frank Luntz writing memos explaining how they're going to pretend to be on the side of the regular people and they're going to blame the Democrats after they insert the loopholes and they water down the bill and then they say, oh, this bill is so watered down. Now, there's only two reasons why you'd play along in that game. One, you're an utter and contemptible fool. I mean, is that what you are, Chris Dodd, who's now saying, oh, I need bipartisanship. Oh, before I retire, I need to have a bill and I need it to be bipartisan. Are you that stupid, Chris Dodd? Barack Obama, Tim Geithner, 
Are you all that stupid? There's only one other explanation. The other explanation is it's all a fraud. The Democrats don't want reform either. And what they want to do is they want to say, oh, 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 the Republicans twisted my arm. Oh, my God, I put the lobbyist loopholes in there, and I watered down the bill. And I, you know, I killed all the meaningful reform, and I killed the agency, and I killed everything. But because I needed bipartisanship, because the Republicans made me do it. Oh, now the bill is so riddled with loopholes that everybody's complaining. I guess we're not going to be able to pass it. What can we do? We lost elections. We panicked. No, we couldn't do it. Wait, did that happen before? That didn't happen in healthcare, did it? Look, the bill, financial reform bill, is getting watered down as we speak. The health care reform got enormously watered down, and now is at a point where it might never pass, right? So if the Democrats think they're smart and they're getting results, well, that is not a defensible position because it is just simply not true. So that's why it only leaves two other alternatives. They're either idiots or complicit. So, look, I, I don't want to decide. You tell me. Uh, if you're a Democratic politician, if you're part of the Obama administration, if you're part of the Democrats in the Senate, you tell me. What is it? Have you gotten great results? No. Are you watering down reform right now as we speak? Yes. So what is it? Are you a fool or are you complicit? Thanks for listening, everyone. I just want to get a couple of mundane things out of the way first and say first that if you are using the best of the left iPhone or iPod touch application, of course, every episode comes with a bonus clip. And today's bonus clip that uh, you should not miss, of course, is from Stephen Colbert and his take on how to improve the U.S. economy. Secondly, I want to remind everyone to uh, please vote at Podcast Alley. Uh, as I speak, uh, the show is in the top 10, which is very important to getting new listeners to find the show and become subscribers. But the only way to keep us in the top 10 is for you to go and vote. It really does get pretty competitive. And so every vote makes a huge difference in keeping us up in the top 10. Uh, so head over to podcastalley.com or frankly, the best way to vote for Best of the Left is through the link to Podcast Alley on bestoftheleft.com. So now, as you may recall, at the either the very beginning of this month or the end of last month, I finally made the announcement that my quote-unquote real job would be coming to an end in the middle of February. So thanks entirely to the members and donors of this podcast, I'm going to be able to take on the show as basically a full-time job. And so now, as I am so obviously dependent on you, the listeners, for my own well-being through uh, people signing up for memberships or, or sending donations to the show, I'm going to do my absolute best to make the show as good as it can be. So I'm happy to say now that beginning in March, you know, I need some time to get ready, but beginning in March, I will be increasing the production of the show from eight shows a month to 10. So every other week, there'll be three episodes in a given week instead of just two for every week. You get the idea. So obviously, I'm really excited to be able to do this. As I always say, there's so much great material out there that I want to include in the show that you know, only being able to do eight shows a month is somewhat restrictive. And I think, I think 10 
hits the right balance. It's not too much, it's not too little. And so I'm really excited to do that. Now, at the same time as I announce this, I want to finally be able to announce a volunteer program that I think people are actually going to be excited about. I've had lots of people send in emails asking how they can volunteer for the show. What, you know, what can they do? And aside from basically spreading the word or finding clips to send into the show, I really didn't have that much that I could just give someone a task and say, if you could do this for me, it would really help me out. And, you know, it was just kind of like something simple and easy they could do and and be done. And so now finally, I have just that type of a program. And it's about the most fun volunteer project I've ever heard of. So I think you're going to be excited. Now, I just need a few people who would be interested in helping support this show by spending about an hour a week watching The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Now, I know, I know that it's pretty it's a pretty grueling task having to sit through, you know, an hour a week of, uh, of The Daily Show and Colbert. It's, you know, it's going to be a little painful to put up with, but it would be a huge help. And, um, you know, there, there's definitely a technical side to it. I just need a little bit of help gathering these clips, basically. And, you know, so I don't want to get too into the details of secrets of the trade, but let's just say that, um, you know, I work personally on a Mac. So if you have a Mac and are interested in doing this, then I will be able to help you out. I will be able to, you know, give you all the direction you need to, to complete this task. If you're on a Windows machine, then I will be, frankly, less able to help. And so if you're if you feel like you're kind of a tech savvy person and you could probably figure out what I need uh, to, and you're working on a Windows machine, that works, too. So if you are interested in that, you want to sign up, you know, dedicate yourself to work on it for a month or a couple of months and, and say, like, yeah, I can I can donate an hour a week. Then uh, send me an email, j at best of the left dot com. Now, speaking of people who already are helping the show enormously, I want to thank a couple of members. Laura G signed up for membership on November 14th and went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance. So thank you, Laura. And Scott B signed up just at the beginning of this month. I, th- I think he heard that I had lost my job and, and wanted to kick in right away and, and help help out the cause. And so Scott B signed up on February 1st and went above and beyond signed up for a year membership so huge thanks to Scott for doing that and, of course, all the members who help keep the show going. And so that is it for today. You can support the show by telling all of your friends first. Do anything else you want later. Spread the word of the show first. Make sure all your friends know about it. Then, if you want to find out more ways to help, check out bestoftheleft.com and see all the details inside the support BOTL orange box on the right side of the page. Really clear and simple. Stay connected between shows by joining me at twitter.com slash best of the left and facebook.com slash best of the left. And finally, links to all the music and the sources used in the show are always going to be linked up in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, soon to be 10 times a month instead of just eight. Thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, sound black and white. You took a part of picture that wasn't right. 
Just a fond friend, I want to be friends.